Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So hello from Cape Town, another episode of the Science of Sport podcast with myself, Mike Finch and Professor Ross Tucker. And to keep up with the theme that we've had uh, since our last podcast, if you can call it a theme, we're going to be talking all about lungs and lung function today. Last week we had a very interesting discussion with an allergologist who talked about allergies and the uh, prevalence of allergies amongst athletes. So you can have a look at that if you haven't heard that already. And today we have somebody who's going to be taking us through some very interesting, um, first of all, exercises mm. and some of the theory and some of the practice, the practical stuff around breathing and uh, somebody who works with athletes, both novice and elites. But before we get to that, uh, another caught my eye from Ross, who's been keeping a close eye um, on some of the stuff on Patreon. Don't forget, you can support us on Patreon. It's, uh, if you go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, uh, patreon.com, and have a look for Science of Sport. You can spot us on there, and if you feel like supporting us and you like what we do, you can uh, donate any amount of money, depending on what level you want to be part of. And you can be part of our Patreon community, mm-hmm. which means you can ask questions, you can get involved in some of the discussions that are having on our Patreon channel. I know that Ross is very active on that channel, um, so you can interact <laughs> right. with Ross um, with uh, some of the stuff outside of the podcast. Yeah, but very active. I'm trying to I'm trying to be disciplined about setting aside a morning a week because I, I get this backlog of messages and comments that you make, <laughs> and then I I try to keep up as much as possible. And what we do is we pick one a week of something that's caught your eye, mm-hmm. and then we discuss it here on the podcast. So if you sign up, that's one of the perks. Plus, I, I am committing to replying to all of you eventually yeah. <laughs> in writing. Whether you know it's, you normally do that. I uh, try my best, but <laughs> my, my admin skills are not not superior. Uh, this this week's caught my eye, though, comes from Craig Farrell, who messaged over the weekend. This would now be when you're listening to this two weekends back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was watching the boxing, uh, Anthony Joshua's defeat at the weekend in Saudi Arabia. And during the undercard, there was a fight between Zhang and Hrugovic, where the commentators kept talking about the fighter getting his second wind. So Craig writes in, he says... We hear about second wind a lot in sport, but is it an actual physiological phenomenon? If so, could you explain it in terms of what's happening cardiovascularly, please? Is adrenaline a consideration? Is it more of a mental thing linked to momentum of a fight? Or is it a myth that commentators like to talk about, but isn't based on any evidence or science? So that's a good one. I mean, have you... I have no idea about that question. In your time in runner's world, have you not done second wind articles ever? I think it probably have, but if you had to ask me that question first up, I, I wouldn't know what the answer to that is. I know that I've probably experienced it to some extent because you definitely go through sort of valleys and, and, and heights if you're doing an endurance race or even just a, a morning Sunday ride where you sometimes get a second wind and sometimes even a third wind. So, mm. But yeah, I certainly 
haven't thought about it as so, a as a wind. Yeah, and I, I've I heard the term long before I experienced the term, but everyone yeah. has. Mm. The thing about it is, I I think that it's used as a catch-all to describe any one of five or six different phenomena. Mm. And generally what it means is I feel better now doing the same thing I was doing a few minutes ago. <laughs> that's all it is. Yeah, that's quite a good way of, sort of, <laughs> and, way of putting it. And if you understand <laughs> it to be that, then it could be literally anything. Mm. I mean, if you, if you run a 10K or a marathon at 35K, let's say a marathon, 35K, you could feel like you're never going to see the finish line. Mm. At 41K, you're sprinting as fast as you can. You yep. run the same speed. In fact, at 41K, you've incurred more damage and metabolic costs than you had at 35, yet you feel better. That's yeah. a second wind. Now, that's a second wind. Or oh, it's a finishing burst. That's a, that, exactly, that's a second wind created entirely by the psychological or the intellectual knowledge that the finish line's close. Yeah. So that's the, that's the end spurt. That's the, that's the governor, anticipatory regulation, whatever you want to call it. So that's one explanation for a yeah. second wind. Another explanation is you fail to eat well enough before a ride or run and you stop for a break or you have luckily some sports drink or energy available on the bike or run and you take it and you feel better. Mm. That's a second one created by the sudden arrival of fuel that you needed and didn't have before, right? So there's that. <laughs> this, there's also probably one of the theories is the old runner's eye, which I'll be honest, I never experienced. The best I ever felt running was normal, never high. <laughs> did you? Did you ever had a high? Oh, absolutely. I, I completely I, believe in the runner's I high. Couldn't, I couldn't ever get, get high that, running, that's for sure. Yeah, but you, you, you experience it in very different... I've experienced it in both in cycling and running, where you get to that space where your just body seems to be purring. It's the only way I can describe it, where you're just purring. When you can be on the bike, you can feel it. You can be on the run where it's just that moment. And sometimes it's only a minute or two in a, in a 10K run where you yeah. just feel everything is working at the, absolutely at the optimum. Yeah, I, okay, I felt that. I'm not sure it yeah. qualifies as the end. So the, the old runner's high is the endorphin release and these yes. natural opiates that your body generates that then act centrally to give you a feeling of euphoria. So it is a thing. I can't say I've had that <laughs> euphoria. I felt good. Normally going downhill. Maybe your euphoria isn't as euphoric as other people's euphoria. Maybe, yeah. Like I say, I, at best I got to normal. Anyway, back to Craig's question. So, so that's one of the theories for, for the second wind. Now, academically, when you go into any academic search engine and you look for second wind exercise, you will learn all about a very interesting metabolic condition called McArdle disease. It's literally that first thing. If you if you go on PubMed, for instance, which is a search engine, you say second wind exercise, you will find dozens of articles describing a second wind phenomenon in McArdle disease. Now, McArdle disease is a condition where you lack the important enzyme that breaks glycogen down. So you remember in your, uh, in fact, we've discovered this um, in some of our podcasts is that your muscle stores glycogen. Mm -hmm. And in order to convert that glycogen to eventually ATP for fuel, you have to first break it down into glucose and then pyruvate and then all the other mm. uh, metabolic insulin's processes. A, insulin's a part of that process, isn't it? Where you have to have a whole bunch of systems in place to be able to use the available energy. Well, that's insulin's more on the storage side. So right. when you consume carbohydrates, you've got to get it into the storage compartment, i.e. muscle. Mm. And insulin helps the glucose get from the circulation into the muscle cell. Yeah. Then it's stored as glycogen and we break it down when we need it during exercise. Now, what these McArdle disease patients have is the inability to, to break down glycogen. 
<laughs> so they have severe exercise intolerance because they cannot metabolize glycogen. Now, and when it's really interesting, I remember learning this in my undergraduate, these people at exhaustion have got no lactate at all. They, they, they exhaust or fatigue in the absence of lactate. Sure. And their exercise capacity is astonishingly low. I mean, some of the studies, they, they reach fatigue at 30 to 50 watts on a bicycle, which is, I mean, that's like mm. soft pedaling on a no chain day. <laughs> yeah. Because they just cannot convert glycogen into glucose and then eventually into sure. pyruvate. Okay. Now, what happens in these patients is that when they exercise, for the first five to seven minutes, they... RPE is exceptionally high. Heart rates are exceptionally high. And they are severely exercise intolerant. But if they can push through that, then after about six, seven minutes, suddenly their rating of perceived exertion drops. Their heart rate comes right down. Their ability to continue exercise improves. And they can go for 20 minutes at the same power output that three or four minutes before was about to cause them to stop. So that is a classic second wind phenomenon. And what's happening there sure. is that it takes time for the fuel stores not in the muscle to reach the muscle. So let's call them extra muscle outside the muscle fuel. So we're talking now from the liver, glucose, and we're talking from the, from the fat cells, fatty acids. It takes, it takes a while, a period of time for our bodies to get that glucose from the liver to the muscle mm -hmm. and from the adipose tissue, the fatty acids, to the muscle. Does this make sense? Yeah. And that's why... When you get to seven, eight minutes, these people suddenly develop the capacity to exercise where a minute before they were on the verge of quitting. Wow. Okay. Because there's a metabolic lag in how quickly it gets there. And I mean, there's a paper here, and again, show notes for everyone. This is from the Journal of the American Medical Association. They describe in this paper an example, and I want to read this to you. It's fascinating. Uh, let me just see if I can find this. Typical exercise response. Peak work at seven minutes was 30 watts. I mean, that's... Sure. Barely, barely even pedaling. Yeah. With a heart rate of 172, close to maximum wow. for this person. As the workload was reduced between minutes 8 and 10, the patient experienced the onset of a second wind marked by decreasing exercise effort. Now it feels much less hard and a falling heart rate. By minute 12, the 30 workload, watt workload was easily, easily tolerated and the heart rate was now 126. So it went from 172 to 126. Sure. at the same workload and the heart rate was then stable for the next five minutes and then they increased the workload to 55 so nearly double corresponding to a heart rate of 171 so they got this person to twice the workload at the same heart rate yeah. and that's because all of a sudden in the absence of glycogen severe intolerance initially but once the let's call it the backups <laughs> once the backups arrive it starts to get a bit better now Elite boxes, when you're watching on television, don't have this condition. No. But there is a theory that a similar phenomenon might explain, from a metabolic perspective, the second wind in healthy people, where initially, as we move from rest into exercise, we rely very heavily on muscle glycogen. But over time, particularly once I reach a sort of steady state, the fatty acid stores and the liver glucose or glycogen gets converted into glucose they arrive at the level of them at the muscle and all of a sudden we can start relying on oxidative stores and so then the lactate levels will stabilize the acidosis levels will stabilize and we will suddenly start feeling better than we had a few moments before so that's the metabolic theory for second wind so in, other, so in other words, there is there obviously is a physiological process that does happen that gives uh, credence to the whole idea of a second wind then. Yes. Now, 
it's it's you know McArdle disease is one of those examples where if you want to mm. know how something works, you study when it fails. Yeah, you know? yeah. it's a really good model to understand glycogen metabolism because mm. these individuals just cannot use mm. their own glycogen. It's astonishing. Mm. Their lactate levels, as I say, are, they actually go down when they start exercising, mm. <laughs> not up like most people's. And if you look to if you look um, to and and listen, no. l- talk to a lot of like endurance athletes, they'll almost inevitably tell you whether they're elite or back markers or just good age groupers that they mm. go through ups and downs right. during the period of a race, which means because nobody gets fueling 100% right. Yeah, um, sure. And, and I, I imagine also psychologically, there's also the psychological factors in that mm. second wind. When you're close so to the finish, you feel there's and so the, many things. And there'll yeah. be hormonal as well. You know, yeah. we spoke a couple of podcasts back about training zones and, you know, the steady state zone is defined almost as the, the or the upper end of zone two is the mm. hardest I can go before I lose my ability to maintain steady state. Mm. Below that, we, we can have steady state levels, but initially it's uncomfortable and it takes our bodies a little while. Hormonally, cardiovascularly, we've got to get signals to all the different parts of the body. We've got to get blood distributed where it's needed. We have to release hormones that will make the heart contract more forcefully and strongly. Our ventilation rate has to go up and initially it probably lags behind demand. So there's a, there's a period during which we're spending more than we have available, yeah. but we catch up to that. And that's why we reach steady state. And I think that's probably what a lot of people, not confuse, but attribute a second wind to. It's like, this was uncomfortable for 10 minutes, but once I got into it, I felt actually pretty good. And getting into it is <laughs> colloquialism for my physiology caught up to the demands. Now, yeah. again, McArdle's is an extreme version of this phenomenon. Um, where it's almost it's almost like it's not it's not a switch that gets thrown but very quickly they reach a point of tolerance where before they were failing in healthy individuals it's probably not quite as sudden but the same phenomenon or this let let put it this way the same principles and concepts probably might explain that so the answer to Craig's question is that there are physiological mechanisms but the concept of a second one is probably used as a catch-all for half a dozen of them yeah. What's yeah. interesting, uh, having done a few Ironman events, for instance, is that I'm always interested to know, and we see the advent of a lot of these uh, glucose monitors now that you can buy and attach a patch to your arm and you can check where your glucose levels are. But you go through phases during a long distance event, whether it's a 100k cycle or an Ironman event, when you go through those dips and you think, when am I going to start feeling better? And I know yeah. sometimes we've been on a long ride and you stop for that red ambulance, that Coca-Cola <laughs> with 30Ks to go. Yeah. And you feel pretty terrible at that point, but you know and you trust that that sugar will get into your system mm. and you're going to feel better 10, right. 15 minutes later. And you do. And you do. Mm. I often think when I'm in those real doldrums, I think to myself, how long is it going to take for this Coke to kick in? Yeah, yeah. And it does eventually. It takes a lot longer than you want it to. Yeah. But it but it does show you that you. what I'm interested in and I wonder if there's, I'm sure there has been studies done, is how fast that that catching up process can happen. Mm. I suppose a lot depends on, first of all, how depleted you are, and right. second of all, how much you do ingest yeah. to do the catching up. Yeah, and so that, that will depend on many things, the intensity of exercise, the degree to which you've put yourself in, in a hole <laughs> through not yeah. fueling sufficiently before, uh, probably even stuff like your habitual diet. You know, Some people will react quicker than, than others would. And so that's where it gets complicated. And just coming back to this McArdle patient, I was telling the story a moment ago about a patient who then gets to 55 watts, heart rate of 171. What they then did here is they 
bombed in a small dose, 50 mils of sugar solution, dextrose specifically, and within a few minutes, the patients get another second wind or an amplified second wind where the heart rate now comes down to 147 and they can keep going for the next 5, 10, 15 minutes. Hmm. So it's clear that fuel availability, both to the brain and the muscles, is one of the things that drives effort perception and thus second wind. But then so will hormone levels, so will respiration, because it's like there's a debt that we incur as we begin and it takes a little while to pay that back. As long as we're in steady state intensities, we will pay that back, but how quickly is the, is the function. And one, just incidentally, one trick, if you're ever out exercising and you do feel a little bit weak, lightheaded, and you think it's because your blood sugar is dropping, counterintuitively, a short sprint is one of the best ways to re-correct that because when we go really hard, we drive our sympathetic nervous system and we get a little surge of adrenaline and adrenaline mobilizes glycogen from the liver and it puts <laughs> it puts that glucose it's back into tip. the blood and you can then get... So you wouldn't want to do that if you're an hour from your finish yeah. because then you can accelerate the use of glucose mm. and probably fail sooner. But if you know that there's a red ambulance, as you say, or something <laughs> waiting for you over the next hill, a little surge... You know, and this, this incidentally, when you, if you eat just before you exercise, sometimes you get a post-nutrition or post-eating drop in yeah. your blood glucose levels, yeah. and you maybe start exercising, you just feel really lethargic. A 30 sec, even less, a 15 to 20 second surge mm. will, will give you just enough of a metabolic and a hormonal kick that you then get the blood glucose levels going back up and That's you can finish the session. So yeah, keep that in mind yeah. as an aside, but hopefully we've done a satisfactory job of answering Craig's mm. question. And the bottom line is second wind is half a dozen things, but there are physiological mechanisms yeah. related to how much fuel I have available, where's the finish line. And then there's emotion. We haven't even touched on yeah, in, mind, in a race situation. Yeah. Emotion is massively important. Yeah, I mean, top. you're going you, to, you, you're commentating now the Comrades Ultra Marathon, even in a normal marathon. Yeah. The number of emotional highs and lows that then have physiological consequences is i mean that's that's what racing the number of people who run their law their fastest mile or kilometer in the last 10 k's of an ultra is quite extraordinary that's (laughs) that's classic that's emotion and cognitive function so there's that for the second wind as well so yeah Yeah. it's a simple question with actually quite quite a complex complex and interesting answer so thanks craig for that and yeah great any other patrons if anything catches your eye you post when i when i send out the the links for the podcast you can either post in response or you can just message the inbox and i will get to you in writing and then one of you will be answered on the next show yeah so go for it great so have a look at patreon.com and have a look for science of sports and uh, you'll be able to see us there quite easily right so as promised uh, next up we have uh, samantha holzhausen who is a Cardiopulmonary physiotherapist, and uh, it's a very rare title for somebody who has given us has given us a very interesting interview, and I'm sure you'll find that in the next uh, in the next uh, half an hour to an hour, and talk specifically around breathing, breathing mm. exercises, and how the simple act of breathing can be changed and improved, even though we all think I'm doing pretty well already. <laughs> yeah, and what's particularly rare is, is her application of that field. Um, I know, especially in South Africa here, we have a lot of tuberculosis. Like physiotherapy in hospital settings is quite a big deal. Mm. And uh, her, she started that way, but has now branched into working with athletes. She also works with people suffering or 
recovering from COVID and so on. But it's the athlete population that's most of interest to us. And I remember first hearing about her through some work with the South African Sevens rugby team. I used to be involved there. And the team doctor said to me that they'd worked with her. They were always innovative, looking for new things and new ways to do old things. And then one of our patron members, actually, who's an elite athlete, contacted me and said, hey, what about this person? So mm. from two different sources, I figured <laughs> it's a sign and let's let's get hold of it and talk. And it's just a fascinating area that is underappreciated because breathing is breathing, right? You all do it. No one ever taught you or needed to teach you. But in actual fact, this conversation will make you aware that it's not necessarily that simple. And there might be even if it's not changes you make, just awareness that will enable you to perform slightly better, but just being aware and understanding what happens when you breathe and how you can control it a bit more. And I can guarantee you by the end of this interview, you will be breathing better. Here is Samantha Holtzhausen. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So Sam, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. Um, in your description on LinkedIn, it describes as a pulmonary, cardiopulmonary, ca- cardiopulmonary uh, physiotherapist. Not something that you plan on when you're finishing school to become that, is it? I mean, it's not something you plan to do very early on in your medical career. No, certainly not me. I was going to do physiotherapy all along, but it was going to be in the direction of sport because I've always loved sport. And then in the fourth year of my studies, we did a block in the intensive care unit and I just fell in love with the lungs and my direction promptly changed from then on. Um, So it's been lungs ever since. Did my community service year in Port Elizabeth and then came back and did my master's in in cardiorespiratory. And it's just been lungs ever since. What, uh, What about it made you fall in love with it doing ICU work? So I think for me, the biggest thing, because we were working in a, in a state hospital in PE, and if your care is not good in the ICU, if you don't optimize that respiratory function in the ICU, I mean, what chance do you have after that of sort of regaining not a normal function, but a good respiratory function after that? So if your care can really be optimized in this critically ill setting, I mean, it just forms a foundation for better care and just an easier return to function after that. Um, and it's difficult work. It's it's not for those who who work in the intensive care unit. It's not easy work. Um, but but just optimizing those lungs in that critically ill space was yeah was what, a, was a real inspiration. What proportion of what you do now is ICU based as opposed to what you've taken away from that environment and applied in a non ICU patient? Yeah, so still still very mixed. I still do a lot of critical care work and then a lot of work in the pulmonary rehabilitation sector. So we run a rehabilitation program for all patients with chronic respiratory conditions. So those waiting for lung transplants, anyone that's on oxygen, 
COPD, cystic fibrosis, any lung condition. So that that's a huge part of my day. And then lately specialized in post-grad work in breathing dysfunction. So mm. we'll see a lot of, of athletes with dysfunctional breathing patterns or exercise-induced asthma. Um, and then patients who have no underlying lung pathology and, and they've just breathed their way into this terrible space. <laughs> because breathing in a, in a bad way can, can elicit these terrible symptoms. Yeah. Um, so those are so, kind of the cohorts that we see. So b- breathing in a bad way is intriguing to me that's yeah. a hook um, we've all been because I mean no one, well. ever, no one ever taught me to breathe from from the very first moment I entered the world uh, it's just been natural right but so it's interesting to me that you can breathe in a bad way um, but before we get onto that I know you're quite a keen adventure sport person climbing running and so on did you did you come to an understanding of this stuff because you were aware of it in yourself or did you learn it and then decide to think about it in yourself just out of interest, what's your experience of breathing as an athlete? Yeah, I, I learn. The more I learn, the more I try to apply it to okay. myself and my own running and on mm. the trails because I don't believe that you should yeah, give other athletes things to do if you haven't tried them out yourself. So I became intrigued with a lot of the principles that were being advised. Mm. I was like, let me give it a shot. And, and initially it was tough to change the way that you breathe while running. And now looking back... I was climbing, we're doing a, a big climb on the weekend up front, shook 6K climb to, to Paracore Peak, and I was doing the breathing as I do. And I was thinking, I can't actually believe I ever breathed in a way that wasn't like this. And um, is, 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 this, is this something I gather that doesn't really exist in a curriculum anywhere? It's kind of like a few places around the world that do this, but it's not like you can find a textbook on this. No. So a lot of post-grad studies. So we work with a Bradcliffe breathing group in, in New Zealand and mm. they opened up this this entire breathing dysfunctional world to me. And it's mm. been incredible learning ever since. Um, so breathing dysfunction, but also breathing enhancing your performance in sport through breathing and looking at that respiratory building block that, that so many sports people don't do. Mm. So if I was yeah. to go, for instance, and search on PubMed or Google Scholar and look up breathing patterns, healthy individuals, exercise, I'd find very little, right? Likely very little. Um, and there, there has been, there's been a lot of, of traction, I think, obviously in our post-COVID as well, into that breathing world and breathing space. Mm. Um, but it's it's the heat, the, the research is, is definitely heating up a little bit mm. more now in terms of how one should breathe. There's definitely, there's a lot in terms of what you can do to improve your breathing in terms of training the mm. muscles of inspiration. There's a lot on that done by certain devices in different sports, rowing, running, mm. cycling. And there you'll find quite a bit of evidence. Mm. Um, but the breathing dysfunction in the research is more limited to the world of where there's an underlying lung pathology at this point and then in healthy individuals with what we call breathing pattern disorders hmm. so well find. describe what a breathing pattern disorder hmm. is i mean what bad what, breathing what, what is bad breathing <laughs> before we get into good breathing yeah so you'll have a look at um, a person who's breathing in a dysfunctional way or person um, that's been diagnosed with a breathing pattern disorder. And it's it's a term given to a collection of conditions where there's been a biomechanical or biochemical change in the way per- someone breathes. So their biomechanics is how their chest shape is, the pattern that they use to breathe. Is it up top? Is it at the bottom? And then biochemistry, the way that you breathe, it changes the composition in the blood. So how much oxygen and how much carbon mm. dioxide there is. And when you breathe in a certain way, you can really alter that biochemistry. And if you get to that point and you really reduce reduce the amount of, of carbon dioxide in the blood, you can elicit symptoms of chest pain, breathlessness, uh, tingling in the fingers, uh, heart palpitations, just through bad breathing. And then we would call it a breathing pattern disorder when it affects your 
your metabolism or your biochemistry mm. in that way. Dysfunctional breathing doesn't always have to induce a biochemical change, but it's more just the pattern that you're using to breathe. We won't say it's right or wrong, because I don't like to say there's a right or wrong way to breathe, but let's say there's a more efficient way yeah. to breathe. And yeah. if there's someone that's breathing dysfunctionally, that can be optimized. Breathing pattern disorder takes takes a bit of work. The terminology is still sticky, but that's how I would decide would it, between the two. Would it be helpful to try and go from very basic principles and say that we breathe under the direction of our brains to regulate carbon dioxide and oxygen. Is that accurate? Yes. <laughs> so when carbon dioxide levels rise, there are centers in the brain that cause us to breathe in because it's necessary for survival. And we then expire or exhale carbon dioxide and that lowers the CO2 levels and we kind of defend homeostasis and there's almost like an acid-base balance and there's a CO2 level. Why... Why would an athlete not just do that well naturally? So I think it all starts with, I think we're all very inclined to look at how an athlete breathes when they're doing their sport of choice, right? But we're not looking at how they breathe at rest. And if you're not breathing optimally at rest, it is going to, to a certain extent, compromise the way that you breathe and how you feel when you do your performance breathing, if we want to call it Mm. that. So an athlete, you will naturally change the way that you breathe in response to exercise. You'll start to breathe a lot quicker and there's certain processes that happen naturally. And a lot of athletes might get away with it. But a lot of athletes might feel that there are these respiratory symptoms that are uncomfortable. And a lot of the time they'll attribute to, well, I'm deconditioned, I'm unfit, or, you know, it's just the way that I breathe. That's definitely the case. Yeah. I mean, I, oh, I mean, we all do, right? Nobody, the point is, I don't know if I'm breathing badly or not. Nobody to listening to this goes through a month of exercise and doesn't at some point feel like, I wish I could breathe better. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so what? What makes? What well, makes? Unless, unless you don't know, there's any way that you can breathe better. Yeah, and so if, if, one, if, if anything comes out of this discussion, it's awareness that you can that maybe you can, breathe more yes. optimally than Absolutely. you do. Yeah. And that's 100% what we're after is so, awareness of breathing so, in sport. Okay, so I come to, I, I, I cycled on Sunday with a, a little guy that's fitter than I am, and every climb I was hanging off the back and couldn't breathe. So I come to you now and I say, I think I might have breathing issues. <laughs> what do you do with me? So we'll first start with doing a basic breathing assessment. And the more you think about breathing and the more you read about it, the breathing, as we like to call it, rabbit hole, gets really, really deep. I mean, mm-hmm. the physiology goes on. Um, but what we like to do is is keep it really simple. So we'll start with a basic assessment of breathing and just talk to you about exactly what it is that you felt. Because often athletes will report these respiratory symptoms that are fleeting in nature, maybe at the peak of their exercise, right at the top of their heel. They'll have these really uncomfortable symptoms a tight chest, wheezing, coughing, shortness of breath. Maybe that shortness of breath, though, is disproportionate to what they are doing. Mm. So maybe they're so breathless at a point in the trail, a point on the cycle that they shouldn't be so breathless. So those are the kind of, that's the kind of fishing that we would do. Because, I mean, one in four endurance athletes are likely to have symptoms of asthma. So asthma-like symptoms. I mean, one in four, it's... it's that's yeah, 25%. Absolutely. But now, but now yeah. hang on, well, my ears prick up because when you say symptoms of asthma or asthma-like symptoms, I gather that means you don't think they're all asthma. Yeah. What are they then, if not asthma? So if one is to look at the the sort of factors that would respiratory limitations to an athlete, right? We'll typically look at about four components. So the first component would be breathlessness, looking at a dysfunctional breathing pattern. How are you breathing? Where are you breathing? Is it efficient? The second one will be airflow limitations. So does a patient have exercise-induced bronchoconstriction? So when you exercise, do your lungs tighten? Does your chest tighten? 
Or do you have symptoms of something that's also really underdiagnosed? It's a principle called ILO, which is exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction where your throat pulls tight. So is there an airflow limitation that's causing your performance limitation? The third one is exercise-induced arterial hypoxemia, which we won't get too, too tucked into now. And then the fourth one, which I think will be relevant for this, is respiratory muscle fatigue. Yeah. So your breathing muscles are getting tired. And now we want to try and find out which box you fit into. Could be m- many of them. Could, could be, be many of them and they could all overlap. Mm. Absolutely. So and with so, you, and we some of them start. are inevitable. I mean, yeah. you could, well, you, that's you, the challenge, you're breathing eh? heavy because you're putting in an effort. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. 320 watts. Yeah. Of course I'm breathing hard. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, how is, do you, so how do you test? In other words, do you use a, what's it, a, flow, a, a flow meter and that sort of thing? How do you test whether somebody is it could be better at breathing so first of all we'll go over the basic assessment assessing where they breathe how quickly they breathe and i can go over that with how, you if yeah, you'd like how, how do sure, they yeah, do um, yeah so basically i'd start with you you come yeah. in and see me we'll have a chat about your ride that was a bit challenging yeah. and we'll explore any symptoms that you felt that you felt were maybe not warranted by the hill. You know, you shouldn't have felt that bad cycling up a hill. Mm. So, and if the listeners want to kind of tick off these boxes as well, it might yeah, be helpful. Yeah, so that's great. the first thing, breathing, we want to look at breathing at rest before we look at your performance breathing. So in a seated position, your breathing should be quiet and relaxed. At rest, you should not be able to hear yourself breathing, right? The second thing, it should be smooth. The, sorry, yeah. inhalation or exhalation or both? Both. And if it's a problem, is it more likely to present on one side of the breathing equation or the other? Or is it equal? It can be. So that that's yeah, very it, it depends on, on a lot of on a lot of patients. My findings on exhale, mm. um, that's usually where, where the noisiness will And presumably I should be breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. So we'll get to that now okay. as well. Yeah. One step at a time. The eyebrows were going <laughs> higher and higher. Was, oh, hang on, I'm saying something wrong here. So <laughs> I'm this, implicating myself, which is good. The, the second one will be your breathing should be smooth and rhythmic. So each yeah. breath wave in and out should be reproducible. It should be equal. There shouldn't be any erraticness to your breathing. You shouldn't take these <sighs> big sighs. Every you shouldn't be yawning. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. breathing should be smooth and rhythmic. Then breathing at rest should ideally be in and out through the nose. So that's one of the big ones. Mm. Um, and if a patient is a chronic mouth breather, that's a big place that we can, um, yeah, just where the patient can really benefit quite a bit from just changing to, to nasal-only breathing at rest. But we'll get stuck into that now yeah. because that is not yeah. easy for all people. Why does it develop in the first place? Or do you want to put that in the parking lot and come back to it? What's that? The fact that some people breathe through the mouth when they could breathe through the nose through or the should nose. breathe through the nose. Like, why does is it, it feels like a bad habit maybe that gets developed? It can be. Or is there a structural thing that drives it so sometimes structural so guys with deviated septums uh chronic Mm. sinusitis Mm. allergies nasal congestion they're going to deviate to the mouth and then that just becomes the way that they breathe Uh if they don't address the nasal issues Mm -hmm. the guys with the deviated septums that's you know then we often refer them to an ent for further uh for further help um but Mm. the nasal congestion we try and sort out as as far as possible or refer them on to someone who can do it better um like an ent or a pulmonologist Mm. or someone like that um but your point on why does that change Often, you know, 
everyone is born breathing correctly. You know, it's our kind of inherent right to breathe well. And it's really become challenged by modern society. So our breathing changes and it's so subject to change from thoughts, feelings, emotions, stress. And we lead these chronically busy lives, right? So we wake up, we quickly try and fit a training session in, we go and work a full work day, we come home, some to kids, um, work after hours, you don't really sleep well, but there's also got to be food somewhere and then we Mm. wake up the next day and do it all again. So we're rushing all the time. just addicted to being busy Mm. Um, and sometimes our breathing changes to match this so when we shift metabolic gears in response to a cold or a virus or something like that it's normal for our breathing to change to match this right Mm. what's not normal is when the breathing doesn't come back down after Mm. that threat is gone Mm. and you're still breathing in response to this threat that's no longer there so I hope that answers your question. Yeah. But yeah. yeah and does. also the way it that does. we sit. So there's a, a theory or a hypothesis that when we're at school and we start sitting in desks and we stop playing <laughs> and moving as much, that breathing also changes in response to this. Okay. But our jobs, lives, stress okay. is, and is it's a obviously big one for breathing. very linked because if we talk about people who want to, if you look at all these apps at the moment and you can go onto them and you can take five deep breaths and you can feel a bit calmer because it, it has an emotional um, effect on your body when you're breathing slow, even just the act of breathing slow actually has an amazing effect on your body as a, as a rule. Hugely. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it so, touches yeah. on, yeah, exactly what you were saying, just that calmer feeling. Mm. And by breathing slowly, you stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system, that rest and digest side of things as opposed to stimulating that sympathetic nervous system that prepares for fight and fight and is really excited Mm. when you're breathing quickly and all over the show because then you're so sympathetically dominant but slow your breathing down and upregulate or increase that parasympathetic tone Mm -hmm. it just calms all the systems and it calms you as well reduces Mm. anxiety so breathing has an effect on your whole body huge Mm. both ways huge so you can't think yourself into a parasympathetic state but we say that you can breathe yourself there because breathing is this autonomic Mm. function and it's the only autonomic function that we have voluntary control over should we right. wish to take it so i can control my breathing now yeah. but then i can let it go my breathing autopilot will take over you can't do that to your heartbeat you can't do that to your digestive system so by taking control of your breathing at more regular moments or micro yeah. moments during the day can just help down regulate especially if you lead an exceptionally right. stressful life and at the extremes you see panic attack the solution is breathe. The Absolutely. thing you get a hold of is your breathing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Not always not always easy when, sure. the, when those panic attacks. Yeah, and often yeah. one will find that there's issues at a biochemistry yeah. level, really, really reduced uh, CO2 levels because they typically breathe really quickly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. to try and correct that is often difficult, but it's 100% through, mm. through breathing, slowing mm. it down. Okay. Yeah. So, you've so you've done the you've done the, you, done the assessment. Oh, we you, took we took you off from oh, the deviation there, <laughs> yeah. halfway yeah, through the assessment, right? <laughs> so we were yes. Yeah, so yeah, we were, it yeah. should be in and out through the nose, right? Yeah, yeah. Then when you breathe, if you're close to a mirror, it's always good to have a look in the mirror. And what we then do is we put we do the high low test. So we put one hand on the upper chest. So the patient will put one hand upper chest, one hand just above the belly button, relax the elbows. And then the patient, it's ideal for them to try and feel where they're breathing because our breathing proprioception is so bad. We think we know where we breathe in, but a lot of the times our patients will say, no, the bottom hand is moving, but they're so apically dominant with that top hand moving 100% and the diaphragm's only moving up or the bottom hand's only moving up because the top hand is pulling it there. Put them in front of the, the mirror for that visual feedback and they're like, oh, actually, my top hand is moving more. So you've got to be standing when you do that idea. So we test in mm. lying flat on your back, in sitting and in standing. 
expanding because your pattern changes the more weight bearing you become. So often you'll find that when you lie in flat on your back, it's easier for the bottom hand to move. Mm. Sitting a little bit more difficult, standing, often patients, if they have a dysfunctional breathing pattern, will be quite what we call apically dominant in standing. So ideally when you breathe, your shoulders shouldn't move and there should be no accessory muscle use. So accessory muscles are those muscles around the neck. So you should see no activation there. You should see no vertical Mm. rise of the shoulders. So you don't want to get taller when you breathe. You want to get wider. So Mm. that's (laughs) where you want to feel that movement is in that lateral space, lateral ribs to the front, to the um, to the sides and to the back. This 360 degree motion as your diaphragm is expanding and yeah. relaxing. Since so we're, not, we're, not, we're not videoing this, but Ross has got his hand <laughs> on his chest and on his belly. Do you know, can you feel which, which part of your body you're breathing with? I'd say it's equally distributed. My <laughs> So my right hand is on my sternum, yeah. just above. Yeah. My left hand is on my stomach. Okay. And what I do feel, you feel? I feel both roughly equally. Okay, so you give and them. I have a, to, and I have to consciously. When you said I should feel the bottom, then I made an effort. Yeah. Now I can say. So typically, it's we 80, don't tell the patients that yeah, before yeah, the so time. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> so now I can say it's eighty twenty. Okay. And as I breathe in, I feel the bottom hand, but certainly there's also action at the, at the top here. Okay. Yeah. 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 And if you yeah. stand, you might feel that that right. action at the top might become a little bit more, and it might be more difficult yeah. for you to correct. Yeah. Hop on your bike, and what happens then? Well, I, I don't know, but I mean, I'll, I'll be worse. aware of it next time. <laughs> it gets I mean, worse I'll... for sure. Yeah. So this is a sort of a micro example of what you should be feeling, but what you're doing is extrapolating that during various phases of stress from walking fast to exercising hard. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. In other words, what yeah. should you be feeling? In other words, if you're, if you're breathing, I mean, why would you breathe with your stomach? Or are you breathing with this? And what should you be doing? That's where it should be. I mean, you should so be breathing should... right to the bottom. You, you talk about apically as an apex of the lungs, right? Yeah, so apex, yeah. So when we refer base. to apical breathing, it's yeah. upper chest movement, which yeah. is what we don't want to see. Your yeah. upper chest will move slightly, but it should fire seconds. So you should have movement at the diaphragm first mm. because it's your main muscle of inspiration. As the lungs fill, then you'll get slight chest movement, but it should certainly not be activating first. And why you want to feel, and we don't say the lower part of the stomach, it's typically above the belly button along the lower parts of your ribs that you'll feel if you put your hands on your side you want to mm. feel them moving laterally and is, it, is and the expansion of the diaphragm that's the expansion of the diaphragm that's where you that filling you up feel. there so you typically feel. not and i know a lot, a lot of people love the term belly breathing but mm. through work i found that it's really misunderstood because you can stand and push out your stomach but you're yeah, certainly not yeah. breathing there you're just yeah. using your muscles to push it in and out yes. so i feel patients misunderstand that when they read that on the internet often they'll come in and they say look i'm breathing through my belly and you're like no, those are your muscles. You're actually not breathing at all. You're holding yeah. your breath. Um, so to just change that narrative and teach them how and where, but diaphragm certainly. So for the benefit of the listeners, what Sam's doing now is you're putting your hands on your base of your ribs, basically. Yeah, you yeah. can even put like them right a little the bit bottom, onto those ribs onto the as well. Ribs. Yeah. And then the movement she's just shown us is that as she breathed in, her hands kind of open out. So horizontal. So it's breath. almost like it's almost like if you had wings now. <laughs> my wings are flapping backwards. That's what that's what the movement I'm looking at is. Yeah. Is it so yeah. you should typically see movement laterally, but also yeah. if I put my hands to the front and the back, you should also feel Out. movement to the front and That's then the to the back as well. That's the 360 degree thing you spoke about. Degree. Filling yeah. from the bottom to the top instead of... Yeah, and if yeah. you both had to take a breath in through your nose versus a breath in through your mouth, you can feel, you should be able to feel how that distribution of airflow changes, right? So mm, in through the mouth mm. is short, sharp, almost always into that upper chest, mm. but a breath through the nose almost goes deeper and, and wider is mm. what patients have, have reported when we asked how it feels. Yeah, that short, sharp cue is interesting because I feel like 
if I wanted to fill it from the bottom up, I'd have to breathe in for about four or five seconds. That would be my timing thought, right? Yeah. Like, okay, now it's done. Three seconds. And yeah. is that something then when I'm exercising that you'd want to be aware of is to actually, you almost want to slow down the the, the breathing. The, the, the force of inhalation has to be modulated in order to get the timing long. Am I making sense? Yes, absolutely. So yeah. with, with um, exercise, we try and get the guys to focus on slowing the respiratory rate yeah. first. So you want to increase the volume before you increase the frequency of breathing. So we want to keep guys away from that, mm. right? Mm. So you rather, and which we'll go into some breathing techniques now as mm. well. But if you can mm. try and slow down that breathing, obviously without impacting performance, we're not looking for for quiet and relaxed breathing while you're doing sure. your sport. Obviously mm. things yeah. will get pretty noisy then. It's more than about the efficiency. So you won't typically go for overventilating the lung and filling it up as much as possible, but you're going to go a little bit deeper than tidal volume, which is the way that we're breathing now, sort of 500 mils in and out, nice and easy, slow. Someone shouldn't really be able to see you breathe. And that's mm. one of the other steps that we'd have a look at when we're assessing how someone should breathe in addition to how quickly that person is breathing. So how quickly do you breathe in a minute? And what do you guys think normal is? How quickly should someone be Between breathing? Between number of breaths per minute. Number of breaths per minute. At rest? At rest or exercise? At rest. So oh, I, would say, I would say it's close to what a heart rate would be, 60 to 70 breaths per minute. No, I'd say 12. I mean, you want to be breathing once every five seconds, I'd have thought. Yeah. So yeah. By, about 8 to 12 mm. is, is normal breaths. When, when, you're, when, you're, when you're now Chapman's Peak trying to hang on, then yeah, it's 60. Because now you're hyperventilating big time. Sure. So if you 60 so breaths a, a minute. So a breath would be an inhale and an exhale. Inhale and an exhale. Yeah. So you're yeah. talking a rhythm of three and a half seconds in, three and a half seconds out kind of thing. Eh? Yeah, something yeah. something along those those lines. So hmm. we measure how quickly someone is breathing. So someone coming into the clinic breathing 12 breaths a minute versus someone breathing 60 breaths a minute, that person is going to look very different. Hmm. And hmm. obviously you think that's the foundation they're creating. Now they're going to go and exercise off of 60 hmm. breaths a minute. Hmm. You know, the only way you can go from there is up. You know, and that just becomes really inefficient really quickly. Mm. So a lot of the guys coming in are about 30 breaths a minute. And that's just someone At working rest. really hard. Wow. Yeah, yeah, really quickly. High. Taking these big erratic sighs and that what we'll also look for in the last sort of tick box that you can have a look at is the exhale should be passive. So you work on the inhale. It's an active process. And then the exhale should be this passive recoil of the lungs. Um, mm. So if you put your hand on your stomach, you shouldn't feel any activity underneath that hand. So when mm. you're exhaling, it's just nice and easy and relaxed. Mm. This will change during exercise, but you certainly shouldn't be working that hard when you're sitting still. Mm. And that's kind of what we'd look at and what one can tick off. And then in addition to that, we'd have a look at actual objective measures and sort of put those in right. to where you are for your in relation to your age predicted norm. So I test your diaphragm strength, but I look at your height, age, weight, and gender to see where you should be. And that gives me an idea of are you above or below your age predicted norm. How do you test norm. diaphragm strength? Yeah, so that's Jeez. so we do something called a MIP, so maximum inspiratory pressure or PI max, mm. and that's your maximal inhale against a, a resistance. So it's right. a small device that we use. Your patient will exhale everything, so they'll empty the lungs, put the lips over the device, and then they'll 
suck in yeah. as hard and as fast as they can. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. measure the strength of the diaphragm, also the contractility of the diaphragm. So how quickly can it contract? Um, having a look at the peak inspiratory flow and the volume that they then inhale and then have a look at their peak expiratory flow as well. So how happy are they to let go of the air? And in patients with asthma or any kind of bronchoconstriction right. obstructive patterns, they're not going to really want to let go of that air and we'll see it in their peak expiratory flow. It'll be mm. significantly reduced. Is that um, FEV1? So yeah, so the so we, metrics as well. we look at specifically just the peak yeah. expiratory flow. So if the the pulmonologist will do spirometry, the lung function tests on yeah, their yeah. computers, and they'll be able to look at the full FEV one on a digital curve. We just do the basic peak expiratory mm. flows to see how much it's air, true. how many liters per minute mm. you're able to get mm. rid of. And you can um, see from those tests whether somebody has a problem or not. We can see quite nicely, right. and then we'll kind of put that together. And we measure, measure rib angle as well, so the <laughs> sort of angle or the the percent not percent the degree between your ribs if someone is quite hyperinflated and not really letting go of that air they'll have quite a, a big yeah. rib angle yeah. and that'll go together with a high or a reduced peak expiratory flow maybe a little bit breathless because they're kind of breath stacking which mm. gets worse on performance as right. well now in the absence of pathology how many people what's the prevalence of abnormalities or dysfunction that you that you typically notice in any of these assessments. So the awareness is not great. Yeah, hundred um, so percent lacking awareness. Yeah. <laughs> um, so athletes, like again, don't don't know that there's that mm. there's help. And we've seen a lot of athletes who struggling in post-COVID, but that now is in response to a pathology. Right. So they had COVID and they were really not symptomatic, went back to doing their thing maybe a little bit too quickly, and now they're kind of having this shortness of breath maybe two months after infection. And that's so. I'm. I'm I, f- I mean, I'm, I don't want to self-diagnose and come across like a hypochondriac, but I feel like <laughs> I might be in that boat. But with, with COVID now, are you seeing are you seeing habits that have been formed through COVID that then persist beyond it, or are you seeing direct effects of COVID on the breathing system even still? Which is it? So I think the post-COVID, uh, your system stays in a sympathetically dominant state. So yeah. everything is on high alert. So everything's working harder, breathing as well. Mm. So habits are formed. Right. We're assuming post-COVID. We also don't know because we never saw that athlete prior to COVID. So, so how no were they exactly? Yeah. Yeah. So what was their baseline prior to that infection? But yeah. certainly what yeah. we've seen is what we call dynamic hyperinflation. So these big lungs, breath stacking, holding onto the air, and really short of breath a lot mm. sooner, disproportionate breathlessness is what we call yeah, it yeah. Um, so that's kind of what we've seen huh. in our in our guys okay. and then athletes who just want to perform better they've heard right. about things and they're just looking for that one percent edge because mm. everyone's doing and this is feedback from a client as well performing at an elite level everyone's doing the same thing right mm. everyone's doing their their sprint and their strength tra- training and their conditioning and their rehab so everyone's looking for that one percent edge where <laughs> they can be even that one percent better than their competition because on game day that that's what matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so one of the big things. I mean, you've, you've given us a sort of the, the, the passive breathing and how it should be. Uh, now, if we extrapolate that into an active, either a rugby match or a cycle or something like yeah, that. a bike ride. Or a bike ride. Uh, uh, talk, us about, talk us through good breathing habits in those situations when you're under stress. Uh, performance stress, performance so stress, stress from yeah. your sport. Yeah. In other words, yeah. when you are breathing yeah. heavily, what are you? Yeah. What are you? Well, have, being, we being a, have we missed no, a step? No, no, Maybe we've missed no, a step, and you don't want you want to do a little intermediate. No, but, no, but no, we, that's we, perfect. We've spoken rest. Is there a walking step? In other words, <laughs> no, yeah. this is you good. You walk, and then you run, and then you sprint, and then you cycle with the Ross. 
and then cam after that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you can definitely, so one of the things that we encourage our athletes who come and see us, look, it depends on the sport as well. Someone yeah. playing sevens rugby versus someone doing endurance long runs where they are able to go a lot slower. It's going to be a little bit different per person. But let's say you're able to go a little bit slower. You're happy with that. We'll try and get them to use what we call the breathing gears. So like you have gears in a car, and you would change mm. those gears depending on the demands of the road. We try and raise awareness that breathing is the same. So as soon as you go out your door, your heart rate hasn't even done anything yet and your mouth is open. We're ready to go. We try and encourage a step or two back, right? So if you have worked at nasal breathing and you're quite efficient breathing through your nose at rest, if you're starting off nice and slow, try and stay breathing through your nose. This is something that's not for everyone and it is certainly something if you practice it you will get better the first little bit is not so easy so just to take a step back and i'm just make sure i understand you correctly the reason why you're encouraging people to breathe through the nose is because nose breathing gives you a deeper breath so it gives you a deeper breath right. breathing in through your nose there's also slight resistance so it automatically activates your diaphragm which is your main muscle of breathing hmm. but more importantly it also warms humidifies yeah. and filters hmm. the air so you filtering what the environment is giving you pollution pollen all of those things right so it's a it's a, actually a first line of defense also breathing through your nose you inhale what we call nasal nitric oxide so it's a what we manufacture in our paranasal sinuses and it's a potent vasodilator so you breathe it in it opens everything up so it's a massive opening like a bronchodilator right. almost for the airways yeah. so in other words um, if you go straight into mouth breathing you're kind of bypassing that you're bypassing the benefits right. of that and also hitting mouth breathing before you need to before you got to the hard part the hills etc so you mm. mouth breathing before you actually need to yeah that's mm. more the the idea around that as well so then you've um, got nowhere to go when you do need you've it you've got nowhere to go you mentioned exactly. something to me even in preparation for this about laryngeal obstruction or occlusion or something yes the ILO so exercise yeah. induced laryngeal Laryngeal obstruction. Yeah. And so that's an, with mouth breathing? So it's it's certainly, mouth breathing certainly doesn't help, mm -hmm. but there's this abnormal closure of the right. vocal folds, so they're not opening as they should. Okay. And a lot okay. of patients are diagnosed with asthma when they have this, but actually it's a throat closure thing mm. and the laryngeal muscles not talking to the diaphragm and also closing. So at peak exercise, they get this... <gasps> can't breathe but as soon as they stop huh. it goes away as right, soon as the muscles right. settle which is very different to asthma um so mouth okay. breathing certainly won't help these guys so in our yeah. ILO patients we certainly encourage nasal breathing at rest start of sport and then before you get to mouth breathing there's this bridge that no one really does is that nose in mouth out so you right. can even do nose in per slip so it's not a dumping of the air not a dumping of that carbon dioxide like <sighs> but yeah. instead Right. And the more you practice that, you can develop a skill in that sort of breathing space and it you can get better at using it. Usually it's the breathing gear that the guys struggle with the most. Even if you do two or three breaths there, it's still a bridge before you get to mouth breathing. And the thing you can add to mouth breathing is that purse-lipped exhale again. So you're trying to stay away from that hyperventilation and you... And this way, in that same way that you would up gear from nose, 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 mouth, 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 when you are finished with your heel and you get to like a long, cruisy mm, downhill, down gear, down gear mm. in that same way. Mm. So you don't need to be huffing and puffing through your mouth because then you get to that hill, huffing and puffing, you got nothing. I mean, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, yeah. and you're enforcing some sort of pacing here, aren't you? Yeah. To some extent. Um, yeah. yeah. So 
I mean, I, I was never, I never enjoyed respiratory physiology when I was a student. I, I, I just, for some reason, I just couldn't. I don't know why, because I'm finding it quite fascinating. Well, I mean, this is. <laughs> it's see, a this, good thing for me because respiratory physiology is tough. They clearly taught me so. the wrong stuff. I mean, I remember like being totally switched off all that like cur- curves and whatever else. But but in my simplistic understanding, I would have thought that the mouth nose combination increases the available area and therefore the resistance goes down that's why we go to the mouth in in the first place right yeah so does that is that not the case i was struck by something you said where some resistance actually activates the diaphragm so in actual fact counterintuitively you want there to be more resistance slight resistance to to cause that diaphragm to activate because it's our main muscle of inspiration Mm. and you Mm. can feel that if if in a person with a breathing pattern disorder who's quite apically dominant, if you're breathing in through the mouth, you're not getting that diaphragm activation. So you're just pounding all of that mm, air into mm. that upper chest, causing dehydration of the throat, um, a lot of irritation, inflammation, discomfort, etc. So what the personal breathing does is it also gives sort of a back pressure as well, which pre- prevents the lungs right. from collapsing, collapsing, mm, and it kind of prolongs mm. that exhale. Even if it's for a second or two longer, it certainly yeah. makes a difference in your rate of perceived exertion as when well. I'm Okay, so when I'm moving through the gears, it's nose, nose, in, out, nose, mouth, in, out, then mouth, mouth. Is it possible to breathe nose and mouth at the same time or does the one switch the other one off? <laughs> like I'm just trying to think now, like yeah. I'm, 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 just, I'm just gasping for, for everything, gear, everything that I can. I mean, it's desperate <laughs> times now you and can. I'm just breathing in as much as I can. Is it all mouth or all nose or can I get both at the same time? I think... And this is just, I think one is going to dominate. Yeah. So I think you may be going to get like an 80-20. Right. Probably the mouth is going to want to pull more. Okay. But the thing is, is even if, if you really focus on where you're breathing and you can stay in a good pattern when you are operating at, at, at your limit, mm. you can be in an efficient respiratory pattern and not apically dominant. So you mm. can be mm. working through that diaphragm. Because what a lot of people also don't think about is that the respiratory muscles, they also get tired. So we think about our quads and our calves and and we train them, but they don't think about the respiratory muscle fatigue. So these poor lungs, especially on an an endurance ride or an endurance Mm. run, Mm. they're having to ventilate you for several hours, move air in and move air out. And the diaphragm is quite a fatigue-resistant muscle, but it will get to a point if you had to test diaphragm strength and endurance pre- and post-event. There's going Mm. to be a reduction Mm. in the pressure-generating capacity of mm. that muscle. So they say about 10 to 15%. So what that can do for an athlete is the first thing it's going to prevent you from getting to your maximal ventilation, right? Which in endurance is fine. Mm. You don't really need mm. to go there. But the second thing that inspiratory muscle fatigue can induce is the, this activation of, of the respiratory metaboreflex. So that's essentially what happens when the inspiratory muscles get tired they redistribute cardiac output or blood flow. So they, it's essentially a blood stealing phenomenon. So they steal blood or redirect blood mm-hmm. flow from the limb locomotor muscle. If, you, if you're rowing, it's your arms. If you're cycling, running, it's your legs. Mm-hmm. They steal the blood from the legs not because good. they're tired, mm-hmm. not good. Mm-hmm. Leads to premature fatigue of your leg muscles, which can directly impact performance. So it can negatively impact performance. Mm-hmm. The respiratory metaboreflex, it's not necessarily something that always happens when your lungs get tired. uh, respiratory muscle fatigue we know that it's there does it always activate this reflex no but in short sharp bursts it could potentially do that and if you have premature leg fatigue not really good for you um if you still got quite a far way to go Mm. and it's so interesting and by doing something like inspiratory muscle training making that muscle stronger you build in a bit of a buffer protective effect where that 
kind of you delay or you attenuate this reflex, mm. um, which is also quite a big thing in in sport and helpful. What's interesting is you mentioned that you've been involved in rugby, so that's obviously a different sport. And we've done a we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about the best position to be in when you want to recover oh, yeah. between hard sessions, being the hands and the knees um, research there. But what's different from those short, sharp accelerations and the kind of exercises and the breathing that they need to do there versus an endurance athlete? I think the endurance athlete has more time. Uh, mm. The the short Control. sharp stuff, the really intense stuff. You've really you can apply the same principles. You're going to get your maximum mouth breathing quickly, and that's quite fine. But for those guys to really focus on down gearing when they can, if they have a brief moment. Yeah. It is really helpful, even in 15s rugby. So if they're walking back and the guy is, you know, they're going to convert or there's a line out and you're not involved, downregulate your breathing. And you've got moments to quickly work through the gears before you've got to go again. Because yeah. it's about um, recovery, isn't it? It's them? about recovery. I suppose Absolutely. Even, even if you are in the line out, you've got 30 seconds to walk to it. Exactly. And you're about to be involved, you best use the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes, a, makes a very, very big, big if difference. You, if you watch much sevens now, rugby you'll see at half time most of the teams are doing it now the south african sevens team was the first to do it where the coach comes into the huddle they got two minutes right in sevens to turn around at half time and instead of talking for two minutes and making the most of it they actually will spend 10 15 seconds breathing before the first instruction from the coach and that was a that was you yeah, I hope so. I know that they. I know that they. I know that they did it before. So yeah. we just they did a breath yeah. in and out, and we just kind of tweaked it to try through the nose mm. in and and. and I guess so that, it was like a physiological sigh on the exhale. Yeah, yeah. and the, and the, the principle was the coach can come in there and give you instructions, but nothing's going in for the first fifteen seconds because there's <laughs> you're in a haze. You're just in a high intensity exercise induced stupor, yeah. and you've got to get you've got to get a grip before anything useful can be said. And that's the whole thing. If yeah. you work with your breathing, you can yeah. actually you can access logical thinking and reasoning. You can mm. play smart rugby or you can play smart mm. sport. But if you're breathing all over the show, you can't access that that next step, that logical movement forward or where should I mm. pass? If you're all over the show, you know, you're not not really thinking clearly. Mm. Um, and it, there was, uh, I think it was 15s rugby and it's so interesting to watch the fly half or ever convert. And it's always, they've all got their little routines yeah. that they do, yeah. right? And obviously, I'll always have a look from a respiratory nerd side of things. But Quade Cooper was very specific when in one of his kicks, and he would stop, purposefully close his mouth, inhale through the nose, and he'd do this like a physiological mm, sigh mm. out, almost to calm the jets, <laughs> upregulate that sort of parasympathetic yeah. tone. And it was just, it was pretty cool to watch that it was a really purposeful action and he did that with every single kick. Mm. And you can't tell me that there's not something there. Mm. I mean, his kicks are brilliant, but um, so, I'd like so, to say it's the breathing, but... So would you say that in, the, I mean, if I look at all fly halves kicking penalties, they're all, they all take a moment to breathe. So they're probably doing that subconsciously anyway. But in that case, was he somebody that you saw helped through being more aware of what he was doing. It certainly looked that way. Mm. Um, and if you think yeah, about it's... when you breathe well, diaphragm has a massive role in postural stabilization, balance, movement. So if you're breathing well, you get to access that. If you are all over the show breathing through your mouth, you miss out on the potential of better balance, better stability, accuracy. Um, so it's, mm. I think there's definitely mm. something there that it would be helpful to to pay attention to to something like that. Mm. Can you adjust 
I mean, I've read about this and seen some dodgy adverts <coughs> on social media around this, but can you subconsciously change the way you breathe? I know that people often, they become mouth breathers when they sleep. And I've read that you can change the way you breathe when you sleep. That doesn't seem possible because the, the, the exercises you're talking about are conscious. Yeah. So what the exercises we initially encourage are conscious, but the aim is to condition what I call your breathing autopilot. So when you're mm. not thinking about it, your subconscious breathing, you're breathing during sleep moments when you're looking, you know, things on your mm. laptop, that you're breathing well. So initially that takes a lot of awareness, a lot of sort of conscious effort, but the more that becomes your breathing autopilot, your go-to pattern, you should breathe that way. Mm. Some people <laughs> still struggle to breathe. It's A lot of the time it's a chicken egg scenario. Am I breathing badly in the day because I breathe badly at night or vice versa? Um, but if you're breathing well during the day at rest, you should be breathing that same way at night. You've probably read on social media about things like mouth taping and yeah. things like that yeah. to encourage nasal breathing. Uh, it's a bit daunting for a lot of people. Um, and that's not like just disclaimer. It's not like duct tape across the mouth. I can just see Hannibal there. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's just a small piece of vertical micropause so that should your lips want to open, they can. You're not like. And this should only be encouraged. So it is a a thing then that you can... It is a thing, certainly. I've tried (laughs) it as well. And actually you wake up feeling a lot more energized and you Hmm. much better sleep, much deeper sleep. But I would only encourage something, even thinking about something like that, if your daytime breathing is optimal and good. You definitely don't do this if you hate breathing through your nose or if you can't breathe through your nose so some people will say on this podcast okay cool breathe through your nose at rest and some people can't they feel this air hunger you feel like you're slightly under in under in the yeah. absolutely and they feel yeah. this need to take a catch-up breath and that's because they're very uncomfortable with this now sudden increase of carbon dioxide in the system mm. because mm. they're used to mouth breathing they used to get in rid of it now you're closing your mouth and there's that buildup of carbon dioxide. And it, this air hunger is not because there's a reduction in, in oxygen. You're not being deprived yeah, of oxygen, CO2. but you're sensitive to that mm. CO2 buildup because that's yeah. our stimulus to breathe. And then they'll want to take this big breath. So right. sometimes it's a process to get to nose only breathing. And then we'll right. do the nose in purse lips and move them over slowly. Uh, uh. Um, and it's interesting then to measure their entitled CO2. So see how much ox- carbon dioxide they have in their blood. Um, as a biofeedback tool to them as well. Hmm. So when you say that, that, and I I get that because I've tried to do nose breathing myself, probably not to an extent where I've really tried hard enough, but I do feel <laughs> like every t- breath you're doing, you're like 5% short of what I should bring in. But in theory, in a normal healthy human being, should you be able to teach yourself, you should be able to bring in enough oxygen if you're breathing in through your nose and exhaling through your mouth. It's just a case of practicing. It's not that you're physiologically, you're not possible. It's not possible to do it. No, it's definitely possible. And Mm. also a lot of us are used to large volume breath. So through the nose and a smaller tidal volume, it's a smaller volume breath. And we don't like that. We've kind of set a normal biochemistry. So your body is used to or established, like you said earlier, Mm. um, a homeostasis that's normal for you. And as soon as you deviate from that normal, it's going to say, hey, take a quick breath out, you know, let's let's get back to normal. So it's absolutely possible. And there's a really great, there's nice breathing retraining exercises that one can do that you'd start on your back um, and just start with slow nasal breathing or nose in purse lips for 10 minutes twice a day to retrain the respiratory center in the brain to breathe in a different way. Like a computer, if you don't change the input, the output's never going to change. Um, hmm. So that's super helpful as well. I suppose people who so, snore, they suffer from that, don't they? So they can potentially even solve that problem. 
Yes, absolutely. A lot of the time to look at their, because also breathing has a lot to do with tongue posture as well. So if you breathe through your mouth, your tongue is lying flat and low tone bottom of your of your mouth. If you are breathing through your nose, it lifts, and that's got a lot to do with, huh. yeah, with with sleep hygiene as well. And that's definitely a whole sure. sort of sphere that one can can look at for sure. Should is is the ability to hold a conversation during exercise and accurate or valid guide to whether I'm over breathing or not it's good the talk test yeah. absolutely to see if you can if you can it's a good sign but, but this is a talk test in the other direction because normally the talk test you'd know this right Mike yeah, like, it's like lot. if you if you want to be sure you're exercising at a low enough intensity on your easy days you should be able to hold a conversation yeah we're actually saying here that some people who have dysfunctional or abnormal breathing patterns might use that to identify that there's a problem in the first place yeah, they can definitely. Because I'm definitely aware, like if I'm riding with guys that I know are either at or slightly less, like a lesser level than I am, I hear them talking and I think, how are you guys doing that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if I try to have a conversation, I'd have to slow down. So this is the other direction. It's a talk test in the other direction. You know what I mean? In other words, you'll you feel like you're going harder than you should and other people behind well, you should be working harder or talking. Well, the crux of this whole issue for me is is like we're gonna you have to hyperventilate. Your depth, your frequency of breathing is going to go up. But what you're saying is in some people it goes up too much. Disproportionate. Disproportionate yeah. Yeah. response. And I'm just thinking what is the best indication of that so that I'm aware that I'm doing that? And maybe it's the fact that other folk can talk at this intensity and I can't. In other words, is intensity directly linked to the amount of breaths that you need to take? It has to be, because that's what's driving the hypercapnia, the high CO2 that's stimulating the breathing in the first instance. So if your heart rate is 85% of its maximum, is your breathing then 85% of its maximum? Or 95, then you've got a problem. (laughs) Or if it's 95, it's a problem. Mm. Yeah, so usually, as you, the harder you work, the harder you're going to breathe. And the more you focus on your breathing, the more you can. There are guys that can nasal only breathe at their maximum work rate, right? So, but that takes a lot of effort and it's it's not oh, always yeah. easy. But yeah. definitely, if you're cycling with guys that you are actually fitter or mm. yeah, you should be able to to talk quite easily. I mean, I've, I've been, I remember riding with some guys and, and like we get to a hill and they're about to be dropped and they're having a conversation. I could not even attempt to say a word, which is interesting. I yeah. mean, and I don't know whether many listeners might relate to this as well, is that some people well, it's the old listen. tactic when you go past somebody on a you run or a ride. <laughs> so how are you going? You take a deep breath before you go past them and then say, how's it and how's your day going? And then when you get out of your shot, you breathe again and it looks like you're going quite easy. So anyway, I'm just, there I'm might just, be some psychological... I just brought it up because I'm thinking a lot of people might be able to use that. I, I guess what I'm getting at is are there, are there tests one can do? Or is it just a matter of awareness and experimentation and so on to see like are there any objective tests like i see on my garmin now that it, it tells me my breathing rate i don't know how accurately that is i assume it's measuring it on the chest strap and it tells me 34 breaths a minute average peak 55 whatever yeah um you mentioned you can measure the co2 levels obviously that's quite specialized yes, you've got to be yeah. in a lab for that you've got to be they... and mostly at rest as well so mm. there are specific tests that one can yeah. do also though in a lab so your gold standard is your cardiopulmonary exercise test yeah. are yeah. you talking more specifically a test that you could do on a ride yeah just listeners now who are listening to this and saying yeah this is really interesting and i'm i'm going to be more aware i know what to be aware of but i need to know if there's a problem yes 
So mm. I think also with, as you were mentioning, it's important to take into account how hard you're working. Mm. So what is the goal of the ride? If it's an aerobic ride, you should be able to breathe mm. through your nose quite comfortably, nose in or nose in purse lips. They do say there's a lot in, in the literature that says you should be able to comfortably nasal breathe when you are training aerobically. Mm. And that'll change the more anaerobic the ride becomes. Yeah, so yeah, I suppose sure. it depends on the guys that you're cycling with, how hard you're working, what your heart rate is, what your breathing is going to, mm. to do. If mm. it's your heart rate is low, you in your sort of aerobic zones, your breathing should match that. And if you're breathing like you are training aerobically, then it, try and apply the breathing gears and see mm. if just being more mindful of how you breathe mm. helps. Mm. And can you... I assume that this is maybe an obvious question is at rest, sitting in my car, driving in traffic, watching television, whatever it is, eating dinner. My awareness of breathing is it's valuable and I'm practicing all the time, nose breathing only now and so on. Do those do those patterns then get entrenched well enough to become fixed during exercise? And how long does it take someone? to restore their breathing pattern yeah. it depends it depends how if if the dysfunction is also at a biochemical level so if they're mm. very symptomatic and they can't go directly to nasal breathing that'll take mm. longer but basic breathing retraining really basic i suppose anything from four to six weeks mm -hmm. but that's at rest moving mm. over into uh into sport can take a little bit longer mm. um definitely a little mm. bit longer uh, then, but definitely, if you focus on on retraining things at rest and it looks good, then um, then exercise shouldn't the awareness part. It makes a huge difference. Just mm. learning to pay attention. Yeah, you'll be surprised at how you might already find that it impacts performance mm. just by regulating and thinking of working not as yeah, hard I, as you as you totally. Have I, know, been. I mean, even we confirmed you for this podcast a week ago. No doubt in the last week, just knowing this was going to happen, I'm 50 <laughs> times more aware of how I'm breathing. I will be now. But yeah, I didn't you will know be as well. It'll be interesting yeah. to see. I'm sitting here what, breathing better already. Yeah, yeah. I've caught myself three or four times. <laughs> what's, what's, what's interesting, I mean, this is all very good in theory, but it's, <coughs> without mentioning any names, what, what have you seen in terms of performance from some of the people that you work with? Can you, are there numbers that you can give? In other words, if you talk about rugby players and endurance athletes, What's the feedback? So yeah, there's there's one athlete that stands out quite um, yeah she stands out quite a bit um, and I won't mention names but mm. but she came in with queries of exercise induced bronchoconstriction potential asthma potential ILO and we worked with her quite a bit and she's improved in her um, in her bronco test so I think she's taken off about twenty three to thirty seconds in that in that test which is huge for them because how they score there determines, you know, what they're able to to go on and do. Um, her sleep has improved, her performance has improved, they've got marks on when they are when they are refing. Um and she's not able to audibly hear herself anymore, which is a big thing for them because obviously you can always hear them on a mic. Mm. Um, so that's improved significantly, even at altitude, which was a huge struggle in the beginning as well. So she's, but she's put in the work. She's really, really worked. And she's someone who um, I often tell my athletes, recovery is so important. So breathing to aid recovery is is really important. And this was a struggle for her in, in the beginning, but I told her, you know, you've got to calm the jets after mm. you've had a hectic day um, and you've got to do just a down, just down regulate your breathing mm. um, and this was huge for her and she said how it's helped her to sleep which was an issue for her so sleep has improved recovery has improved speed on her performance test has impo improved and also just her general comfort of covering quite a lot of distance during a game mm. and then a lot of the other guys that we've worked with also cyclists so they've improved in their time trial performances a lot of these guys I must say 
we've improved their breathing, but we've also added in inspiratory muscle training. So that's like right. a weight training, inspiratory um, resistance training for these guys. Hmm. Um, How do you so do that? Yeah. How do you train yeah. and and weight train resistance training? Resistance training on the, training on the, on the diaphragm. Muscles, yeah. Yeah. So it's a, a handheld uh, inspiratory resistance device. So it's about um, the size of my palm. And you have different settings. So the better you get, the, t- the more you can tighten the coil. So that's right. essentially how you increase the resistance. And we'll essentially set that at about 40% of your diaphragm strength. So we'll do that test and then we'll set it at about 40% of that and then get the patient to <sighs> inhale against the resistance and exhale. And they'll do at that rest. pretty at rest. They don't go and sit on the bicycle and... They can. Yeah. So initially yeah. they'll do that address 30 breaths twice a day. The better they get, the harder we make it. Um, and important that they do it in that correct pattern. So yeah. often you'll go online and you'll see guys with these handheld trainers and they'll yeah, be going into these. this upper chest. Yeah. But they that's um, evidence-based and it is proven yeah. to reduce sort of your, your time trial performance. So that's what we've seen in, in quite a few of our cyclists and then trail runners as well have, yeah. have improved and placed in, in endurance events. And, and I was going to say, I'd, I was wondering whether those devices were more of a fad, but, but you, as you say, there is proof that they work. Yeah, so... Are there, are there different levels of like... There'll be medical grade standard ones, and then there'll be the the hacked off imitations and cheap versions of them, right? Or, yeah. Or no? So there's one specifically that we work with. So we work with a power breathe device, and I'm not endorsed by them at all. No, but we work um, with them, and because of the research that has been done in the inspiratory muscle training field, has been done with power breathe. Mm. A lot of the other devices that are on the market now are kind of piggybacking off of mm. their research. So mm. yes, your device does do the same thing, but the research has been done with Power Breathe. And mm. there we can do, we do um, guys that are in the ICU on ventilators, we get them to do inspiratory mm. muscle training, guys with dysfunctional breathing, even our patients with COPD. So it can be titrated according to where you are in yeah. your in your journey. And it's, it's yeah, it's really helpful. Now, obviously the, the, the pre-post when you do this is going to be performance for an athlete. I guess for someone in ICU, it's, lung function parameters like tidal volume and so on and diaphragm strength away from that what are the pre-post things that you would typically measure to know if your interventions are working in your athletes that you work with are there are there measurables that you can with inspiratory muscle training specifically or just no, in no general? generally generally in general. now um you know you talk about it being a four to six week addressed potentially three to six months is there something like a checkpoint that someone would be able to go to once a month and say, actually, I'm making progress here? Yeah. Or is it just perceptual? So unfortunately for the athlete, it is perceptual, yeah. rate of perceived exertion, mm. time on their different um, on their different rides or their runs. Mm. So they're just feeling better. They're right. not feeling asymptomatic anymore. So yeah. that's a big thing for them is a reduction in their respiratory symptoms, cough, wheeze, shortness yeah. of breath. Yeah. So that's a big one for them. From our side, objectively, we'll do all those measures that I mentioned earlier. And then we also do specific uh, tests. So we do the um, shortness of breath questionnaires, ILO questionnaires, mm. and we redo mm. those mm. Um, after we've seen that there's been some some improvement and typically their scores are much less because their symptoms are a lot less yeah, and then yeah. we'll reevaluate breathing pattern as well so when they came to us they were 80 percent up into the top of their chest 20 percent low when we reevaluate the breathing pattern has normalized or uh-huh, has become uh-huh. more efficient because i often wonder whether not whether how much awareness drives the change as opposed to the actual interventions done off the back of awareness in other words if I'm going to achieve a change of arbitrarily 10 units, was 70% of that, 7 out of 10, just awareness, and the 3 out of 10 added on by your exercises and activities, or was it 
three awareness and seven the activities you know, you know what i mean like yeah i think it's different awareness is huge yeah. and i think just adding that in as a treatment technique in in guys that don't have bad breathing pattern disorders mm. that can already that might be all that you do just mm. change the way that you breathe do this do this apply this to exercise mm. that might be enough but in terms of the objective and the formal respiratory measures like diaphragm strength peak flow diaphragm contractility and tidal carbon dioxide those things awareness won't won't really play a part in those are mm. quite objective yeah, in nature so i think it's a mix a mixture of both but awareness is is huge it's, and it's, like you said, just by being more aware, you mm. could shift your pattern. There's some patients who yeah. can't shift yeah. their pattern. doesn't matter how aware they are. There's no ways that they can do that. But to a point, right? And then yeah. beyond that, maybe I need some, or, or the person needs some some extra yes, support and assistance. Yeah. Absolutely. Do, do you think this is the kind of a, a new frontier in sports development? In other words, if you look at the, you've, you've obviously treated some athletes, but mm -hmm. are, do you kind of feel like every single sport would benefit from doing this sort of thing and then maybe in five years time everybody who's got a whiff of being a professional sportsman will start doing this kind of training i think it's an important look like of the three body systems that contribute most to athletic performance right cardiovascular musculoskeletal and respiratory respiratory is just the least appreciated it's just not really mm. taken into account because we just do it we and just do we don't it. need to be yeah. and respiratory yeah. health in athletes is it's, it's just really overlooked so i do think it warrants more attention because especially if you look at something like respiratory tract infections right it's one of the most common presentations of an athlete why they go to the doctor yeah. for something other than an injury is a respiratory tract infection mm. mm -hmm. and those things kind of go unnoticed so a systemic approach of a respiratory health in athletes i mean there was a study done I think 122 athletes across 12 Olympic sports. So these are like high-end elite guys. Almost half of these guys reported respiratory symptoms a year before data collection was done. And when asking these guys who had one respiratory symptom, about 80% of them did, and who had two respiratory symptoms, about 60% of them did. And that's a lot. That's things like shortness of breath, wheezing, sinonasal issues, laryngeal issues. Mm. And those are guys at the top of their game. So you can't, I find it really hard to believe that a respiratory health assessment or paying attention to your respiratory system, I mean, is not a good idea. I mean, are you suggesting then if you if you're breathing better and I'm, maybe I'm taking this a bit far, but the, the theory says if you're breathing in through your nose more often than you're breathing through your mouth, you're cap capturing a lot of allergens, as we discovered in our podcast last week with uh, uh, with, uh, with the doctor who was an allergologist, yes, um, talking a lot about how you know the mouth breathing is actually what brings in a lot of allergens into your system. So what you're saying is the more you breathe through your nose, the less likely you are to be sick. It's a Can huge, we take it as far as that? It's a huge first line of defense, absolutely. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and especially the, the addition of the nasal nitric oxide also, also plays a role in that defense system as well. But I think looking at your respiratory system, aside from just improving performance, I know one just wants to look at that sort of in isolation, but I think if you think of what that can do to you controlling your daily stresses, sleeping better, I mean, mm. we all know that those boring things all play a role in, in performance. They're mm. all essentially mm. the building blocks of performance. Mm. So if you breathe better, you do control life stresses better, you do sleep better, breathe better at rest, you're ventilating better, you're using the correct muscles. Um, sure. So, look, my, my opinion, I suppose, a little bit biased as well, because we see such good results. But there's a lot of chatter. I mean, Prof. J um, James Hull has done a lot of work. He's in the UK 
on respiratory health in athletes. And the findings are quite incredible um, from a respiratory side of things and how prevalent um, a lot of the, um, the symptoms are in these mm. guys. We wouldn't really expect it. Elite guys taking part in their sort of high in sport. You'd mm. expect them to be quite fine. But I guess yeah, many of them have got to a high level. They're always looking for that 1%, 2% more, and potentially this is something that could give them that Definitely. half a percent more, which could be the difference between yeah. winning and losing at yeah. that level. Yeah. And even if you look at respiratory tract infections, I mean, you get sick, you're on antibiotics, yeah. you're out, you can't train, you've got to get lost. back into it. Mm. Exactly. So mm. if you can prevent even that, and, that will have an effect on performance. And actually, there's, there's data. I mean, you would have seen some of the studies that if you, if you sampled, say, 1,000 people who ran two oceans or a marathon or whatever, Many of them develop the symptoms of having infection without an infection, simply because of the mechanical stress of breathing for five, six hours or three, yeah. four hours quite hard. Yeah. So even even controlling that aspect would be beneficial in the absence of an infection. Definitely. And if you, there so, also there's uh, not big studies, but I mean, your, your net amount of water loss, nose mm. versus mouth breathing. So just the dehydration component from mm. in and out through the mouth from five or six hours all that irritation you breathe in in whatever the environment has to offer you through your mouth, um, drying everything out, irritation, inflammation, there's coughing, um, post-nasal drip maybe, mm. dripping down into the lungs, maybe they get a little bit sick. Um, so it all, it all I think, plays plays a role for sure. Yeah. I suppose the yeah. thing is, also like, what's the downside? No, what's I the mean, downside? There's no, there's no <laughs> downside other than... Other than now I'm going to be obsessing about how I breathe for three hours on a bike While ride. I'm just down the road. <laughs> <laughs> and next it. time we ride together or not, we won't be talking to each other. We'll just but, be breathing yeah, through our noses. Yeah, I'm, going to, I'm going to point out every time I hear you breathe through your mouth, I'm going to cough. Um, you, you know, like, I mean, the, the, I think in my mind there are some parallels to like running, you know. We don't have to learn how to run. But actually some people run badly and they have to fix some problems in order to run safely without injury and faster, right? But there's a downside to trying to change how you run because yeah. now you become actually like overly mechanical and you don't you don't yeah. learn to relax and so forth. But I don't see that downside here. It's similar in the idea that it's natural. You don't have to think about it, but actually you do. <laughs> but there's no, I, I can't see it. Can, there's no downside. So therefore try it. Because in theory, if you train in any kind of sport, the more you do it, the better you become at it. Unless you've but got a bad habit. And well, then if you train it strongly. This is, this is one yeah. element where yeah. a bad habit can stay entrenched, even no matter how much you train. It can, and the yeah. bad habit can, and not with everyone. Mm. And this is also can be the case of if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you yeah. know. And, mm. and, and a lot of mm. the guys that have the most inefficient, or we say inefficient, but funny looking running styles, right. they actually run amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and There's that's some... why I said initially as well, we can't say, oh, you're breathing wrong or you're breathing mm. wrong. It's mm. just maybe a little bit inefficient and let's try and make it. Let's optimize it a little bit and see if we can optimize mm. your performance through mm. optimizing your breathing at rest yeah. and make you a little bit more comfortable so that you're not working so hard. Mm. Um, mm. And that's kind of the, the thought there, behind that. Is there an, I mean, obviously, we're going to include your contact details. You're geographically constrained <laughs> in Cape Town. Um, but if, if anyone listening to this wants to, to see you, they can do that, right, in your clinic. Yes. Uh, is there an online resource where people can go and learn a little bit more about this that might be accessible to anyone anywhere in the world that you can recommend? You mentioned a clinic in New Zealand. Uh, yes. What is that called again? Yeah, Bradcliffe Breathing Group in mm. New Zealand. So they, they've got quite a bit on what dysfunctional breathing is. Okay, we'll share a link. Um, yeah, we'll yeah, get that from you. I can you. definitely send that through to you as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, so so there's quite a bit of, of information mm. on, their, on their site. And they've done yeah, great work in the field and they're all physiotherapists working in the field of of respiratory or muscular respiratory as and well. Is there an equivalent um, in the UK, North America, somewhere? Yeah, so the thing with, with Bradcliffe, what we do as well is we train in 
individuals from all over the world to be okay. able to do this. So there's so level one, level two, and there's Bradcliffe um, trained practitioners as well. So on their website, mm. you're in UK or you're mm-hmm. in Ireland mm-hmm. and you want to go and have a look, Perfect. contact one of them because they'll be able, because this is not something that you learn mm. sort of in undergrad level. It's a lot of postgrad stuff. Um, so having a look for a Bradcliffe trained practitioner, I would say if you're mm. concerned um, and they deal with sport in, yeah, guys in the ICU sort of the whole sort of spectrum that's I mean so, that's great uh, yeah, yeah. Well, this we'll has been put that in the show notes for sure yeah this has been a thousand times more interesting than anything I learned in undergrad <laughs> that's what they should I'm have so taught glad. me I would have been should have specialized I would have been a respiratory pulmonary. sports physiologist if we'd had yeah. this stuff instead of that other nonsense <laughs> <laughs> Sam Holtz, our cardiopulmonary physiotherapist. The first time we've ever had anybody with that uh, title at our podcast, probably the last person. But thank you very much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, both, I, I'm sure people who are listening to this podcast yeah. are probably breathing better already. So um, <laughs> you'll be able to help them as well. And uh, I think the next time I go riding, it'll be interesting just to uh, to tie those methodologies. I guess it's not an overnight process. It's, it's, no. it's a you have to train yourself. Definitely. Like yeah. a skill that you need to yeah. develop. But I, yeah. I must say, from trying it myself, it's definitely definitely worth investing your time. And like Ross says, mm. you know, you've got nothing to lose and you will feel mm. a lot more comfortable. So yeah. definitely give it a shot. Yeah. And it's been great chatting. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, I've really enjoyed myself. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you so much. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 